We'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll finish the chapter this morning. And I actually want to read before we do much of an introduction. And so take a moment. I'll give you just a second there to open it on your phones. If you use your Bible on your phones, to open a paper Bible. Um, which, if I can make a quick plug for a paper Bible, there's something about seeing it on the page, learning where it's at in your own Bible as you flip through it, being able to write on it, some real benefit there. But if you have it open on your phone right now, I'm not judging you right now for that. I'm glad you have it open there too. But some real benefit in the paper Bible. All right, 1 Corinthians 9, I'm going to read verses 19 to 27. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In some circles today, and, and perhaps run in some of these circles or are familiar with these arguments, in some circles Christianity is seen as a, simply a tool of oppression by the Western world on other people groups. And, and that's especially so if they hear Christians talk about wanting to spread Christianity to others. Um, any talk of intentionally seeking to uh, proselytize, as it would probably be worded there, to, to influence people to convert to, to Christianity is viewed as just a form of coercion or even imperialism by the West. There's a few problems with that, though. First, uh, Christianity is the most diverse movement in human history. And in fact, by far, it's the most diverse movement in human history. From the beginning of Acts chapter 2, when more than a dozen languages and people groups all heard the gospel in their own language and were prepared to take it back to the global spread of Christianity around the world today. It's never been monolithic. It's never been just held by a certain select few. It's not an American thing. It's not a Western European thing, certainly. Second, Christianity is the only religious movement, the only major one anyways, that has seen the center of its influence move over time. You know, Islam is still largely centered in the Middle East, although it's spread, of course. Hinduism is largely centered in India. 
But Christianity has seen the center of its influence move from the, the Middle East to Rome to Europe to perhaps further into the West. And now in many ways is kind of shifting to the global South in South America, in Africa, in Asia, as we see those being the places where the gospel and Christianity is spreading the fastest. And in decades to come will likely be more of the center of influence. Third, if Christianity is true, it would be unloving not to share. So, so it's that argument against, you know, diversity, that it's a form of oppression, that doesn't hold up because that doesn't match reality. But also, if this is true, what we're saying we believe, then how could we not share it? How could we not want to see it spread? How could we not want to have others here? And fourth, although there have certainly been movements of Christianity in history that have tried to spread Christianity by, by force or by coercion, they do so in contrast to biblical principles, not in obedience to biblical principles. So, so there have been times where Christianity has been maybe inappropriately wedded to the culture bringing the message so that the gospel comes to a people group and, and they want to share the gospel with them but also want those people to, to dress like them and, and talk like them and their buildings to look like theirs. And, and, and so the, the gospel carries with it this cultural conditioning that needs to go along with it. Certainly that happens sometimes. But as we're about to see in this passage, that's in contrast to what we should be doing. In contrast to how Paul operated, what we see in this passage is not coercion or imperialism, but immersion and persuasion in the midst of that. Immersion in whatever culture he's trying to reach, as long as there are things that are not contrary so it would be biblical principles. He was willing to adapt to various cultural practices so that he might win those who are within that group. And that ought to be the model that missionaries follow today. It ought to be the model that, that we seek to follow as we try to reach people around us in our own little spheres of influence, whatever they may be. What we see here, we just read through it and we'll walk through it now in more detail, is that we should be willing to shed unnecessary restrictions, not place them on people. We should be willing to, on the other hand, embrace personally some restrictions on ourselves if it means winning a, an opportunity to be heard with the gospel. So we're going to see this in two parts. The first is we're going to see some personal accommodation for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and then we'll see personal discipline for the sake of the gospel. So first here, in verses 19 to 23, personal accommodation for the sake of the gospel. But tries again on verse 19. It says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Contrasting ideas of freedom and slavery. He says, I am, I am free from all men. I'm not enslaved to the expectations of others. I'm not enslaved to extra biblical restrictions and traditions. I, that, that stuff doesn't hold me. And yet, I have willingly made myself a slave to all. 
contradictory ideas and yet lived out for the believer. Martin Luther, in his short book on the freedom of the Christian, he he wrote this in the very first opening lines. A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. And we see both in this opening verse. Paul is saying, I'm utterly free. And yet, following the example and teaching of Christ, he willingly made himself a slave. Remember, Jesus taught, Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45. So this is not this way among you. Talking about what it means to lead and strive for greatness and inappropriate ways they were doing it. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus left the the glory and comfort of heaven when he came to serve. He experienced real life as a human because he, while remaining fully God, he took on real humanity. And so he became one who could be tired. He he could grow weary. He, He got hungry. He experienced thirst and physical pain, things that he did not need to experience, but he willingly entered into. And so he says, if that was, Jesus tells his disciples, if that's what I did, that's what you are to do in one sense. You are to be a slave of all, willingly giving up comforts and privileges, um, if it means reaching. Now, he did that, of course, to come and to die as a substitute That's been done, but we can do that to bring that message to people, willingly giving up, uh, giving up what we would have a right to hold on to. We see repeated in here five times the goal for why he says that he wanted to do this. And so put your eyes again on the text. He says, he, he does this, that he may win more. Verse 19, so that I may win more. Verse 20, that I might win those who are under the law, that I might win those who are without the law, verse 21. I might win the weak. It goes on and on. And then he summarizes it by changing the language slightly in verse 22. It says that I might by all means save some. This is the goal of this. The, the willingness to become a slave of others is to see them one to Christ. If that sounds like a competition type thing or if it sounds uncaring, don't, don't misunderstand what's meant there. The idea is to be persuasive, to see people come to saving faith in Christ, not to simply you know, add more players to the team or kind of build up some type of ego because of a larger following. No, no the idea is we want people to come to Christ, to, to be saved, to use the language that's here. We have to ask the question, saved from from what? Verse 22, that I might by all means save some. Save from what? Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Oh, I thought I had it up here, but I don't. Sorry. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says this so well. It says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, saved, forgiven, made right by his blood, we shall be saved 
from the wrath of God through him. We want people to be saved not just from a, a life of boredom or a life without meaning. We don't want people to just be saved from kind of discouragement in their own heart, although all these things kind of ripple out in terms of an effect. That what we need to be saved from is, is the wrath of God. The, the wrath of God that, because of rebellious humanity, awaits people. We will never feel the urgency of this passage unless we grapple with the wrath of God. We won't. If we feel like, you know, this is about filling more chairs around us or adding more people to something that seems like a good thing for their lives, we won't feel this urgency. On the other hand, if we see it as people need to be rescued from the wrath of God to come, then there's an urgency that comes about. So with that urgency to, to win, to win, to win people to Christ, to see all be saved, he explains this strategy of accommodating himself to different people groups, people groups that would have different worldviews and practices and hopes and aspirations in some ways. Uh, the, the, the Jews that he was talking about here would have been in some ways cultural Outsiders throughout the Roman Empire occupied in their homeland and then dispersed. Their hope was for God to once again overthrow this dominating power and restore their homeland. They would have had unique holidays, unique food requirements from the people around them. But then there was this sizable, much more sizable Greek population that would have been the majority would have been polytheistic, worshiping many gods. They would have sacrificed many food to many of these idols. They, they would have valued rhetoric and philosophy and athletics. They, they, would, have, they would have been diverse, um, even from kind of within themselves. And, and so Paul's saying with these different groups, I... I'm doing what I can to accommodate myself, not the message, not changing the message, but understanding them and reaching them. And so he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, I became as though I was under the law. I think those are two ways of referring to kind of the same group, not just those who were Jewish by nationality and origin, but who still saw themselves as under the law as needing to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament law when it came to food restrictions and uh, celebrations and feasts and holy days. So there's these that are under the law. And so I became as under the law, even though I'm not. Remember, that's what he means when he says he's free. He's not under the law in that sense. He doesn't have to follow all these things because they've been fulfilled in Christ but he willingly acts as if he is under those things. He places himself under them. We've seen in the previous few weeks that things like circumcision that would have been part of the law, circumcision is it's not anything, or uncircumcision, but a new creation. We've seen that dietary laws are not necessary. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do. So when he says he's free, he's saying, I don't have to follow these practices, but if I'm trying to reach those who do follow them, I will willingly follow them. I will not eat certain foods. I'll 
practice you know, and, and participate in perhaps certain celebrations because I want to reach these people, not because I feel like I'm under obligation to do so. He's free from those requirements, but willingly took on some restrictions to make himself a slave to them, to win them. Uh, you can contrast two different approaches here that, that maybe help to, to kind of understand this. When it came to the issue of circumcision, there, there were two incidents. One where somebody who was traveling with him, he had them be, be circumcised. And another where he refused to have him be circumcised. This I know is not on the screen. It's a little bit longer here. But in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, we see the first instance. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him. And circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Did you get that? There's this young man, Timothy. And Paul wants to bring Timothy with him. Timothy was a believer in Christ, as was his mother. And his mother was Jewish. Jewish background. Father was a Greek. They wanted to go reach Jewish people with the gospel. So he had Timothy be circumcised so that he could kind of be part of this mission. Well, in Galatians chapter 2, he describes another instance. Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Why did he have Timothy circumcised, but not Titus? Timothy's probably wondering that too, right? Like, because there are very different scenarios and different motives. The one is they were wanting to reach Jewish people with the gospel, and having Timothy not be circumcised was just a door closer to them. They just wouldn't want to hear. And so, willingly had Timothy be circumcised so that that obstacle wasn't there. But for Titus, it was a different scenario. There were some who were wanting to add to the gospel, saying, yes, you need to trust in Jesus, and you need to be circumcised, and you need to follow these food rules. And, and Titus says, Paul says, no way. We are not going to entertain that even for a minute. I think even for an hour is what he says there. Because he doesn't want to confuse the gospel. So there's a consistency here. Even though it might seem inconsistent, there's a consistency of a focus on the gospel, sharing the gospel, protecting the gospel. So it necessitated some different approaches. So he says here, to those who are under the law, I came as one who was under the law, even though I'm not. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He's describing here now Gentiles who would not have had this tradition of Old Testament law so he would have gladly eaten with them whatever foods they were eating. He would have talked with them, perhaps even dressed like them at times. Uh, although, notice his disclaimer. He says, but I'm, I am under the law of Christ. He, he wanted to be clear that he's not just throwing out any kind of ethical requirements. He wouldn't have said, for example, here, to the thief, I became as the thief, right? I joined in this thieving band because I wanted to reach them. It's like, no, that's... 
still excluded. In, in chapter 6, 9 to 11, that was one of the things listed in these things that should not characterize those who are believers. So it's not that those things are irrelevant. There's clear moral commands here still that flow out of our obedience to Christ. But there's these other things that are irrelevant. Food and certain celebrations. And he says, I'm, I'm willing to take on or shed those if it gives me a hearing with those I'm trying to reach. We can think about this then in, in our own lives. Uh, maybe by considering three different ways that Christians can maybe interact, some, some for better, some for worse, with the world around them. And then maybe a way to picture this. I'm going to give you a, some diagrams here. The first is what can be a tendency of believers to withdraw from the world, where, where the, the Christian and the world, and by world I mean just those who don't know Christ, those, those who have, have not been saved, those who need to be one, to use the language of, of Paul here. And, and there can be a tendency for Christians to, to withdraw and remain completely separate. And sometimes that makes sense during times of persecution, out of concern for what they're seeing in the world. And so there ends up being kind of this parallel community that is just totally separate, sometimes even separate in terms of dress and language and cultural practices, like the Amish would be the most extreme example of that, right? Where there's just this totally distinct people group. But we can do it in smaller ways where we just remain utterly separate. We have no friends that are kind of in the world, we have no real relationships, contacts, no, no opportunities for, for outreach there. The other extreme would be to conform to the world. And, and so that would maybe look more like this. Rather than these two separate circles that, that don't overlap in any way, this one, the Christian, is just immersed in the world and, and is basically indistinguishable from the world and in terms of their language in terms of their practices, in terms of their ethical standards. Sometimes that is from good motives, like I want to reach the world, and so they just throw themselves in to whatever's going on. But it's kind of going from like cultural anorexia to cultural gluttony and just taking it all in. And what can happen is we can just simply be conformed. And then there's no distinction. There's no distinction that can highlight the gospel and, and there's compromise in our own lives. And a better model then would be, I think, what we're seeing here in this passage of looking not to, not to withdraw from the world, not to conform to the world, but engage the world. And so it would look something maybe perhaps more like this where there are points of contact between the Christian and the world, the, the Christian and those who don't know Christ, there's still distinction. There's still lines where they say, yes, I want to I be your friend. I want to spend time with you, but I can't, I can't go here. But, but I want to know you, and I want to know your struggles, and I want to be immersed in your life and in you and mine, and that there's lots of non-moral areas in which we can make those connections. This would be, I think, the heart behind Jesus in John 17 where he's praying for his followers before he dies. And he prays for them, Father, keep them in the world. They are 
in the world, but they're not of the world, right? They're, they're in it, but they're not of it. And, and I've sent them to this world uh, with this message. And so that's what we see Paul trying to live out here in 1 Corinthians 9. That's why I think we see sort of represented here, knowing there's times to connect and pursue, but then kind of times that we need to, to pull back and not go along with. Okay, so what does this look like in real life? Um, if you're out in the working world, what are your relationships like with the people that you work with? There might be some that are, we might charitably say they're, they're rough around the edges, right? You know, perhaps... Um, some that are maybe nice people but don't know Christ. And how do you interact with them? Are you the one that just kind of always remains separate? Right? Not just because you're an introvert, but because you're just, you just kind of struggle to get along with, with, with these people who don't know Christ. And so you just always withdraw. Maybe they go to lunch together, but you don't. Maybe they sometimes hang out after work together, but you never do. And, and perhaps for because you're trying to, you know, to not go along with some things they're doing. But... But instead, are there some ways that you can look to make connections there? Are there things they're doing that you can jump in with? You know, so, uh, going out to lunch with them. Maybe they're getting together after work for some type of gathering. and Can you jump into that? Maybe there's something they might do where you say, ah, I can't, I can't go along with this. They're going to want to move along to some party where you know something not good is going to go on. And you don't want to be associating with that. So you might say at that point, I'm going I'm to head home for the night. But you're looking to make some connection there. This is tricky. It's tricky to know how to engage without conforming. And I think that's why the other two models are kind of appealing to us. Because if our, our model is, I'm just always going to withdraw, then that doesn't take a lot of discernment. Or if you say, I'm just going to immerse myself in whatever's going on, that doesn't take much discernment either. This takes discernment. Figuring out what is, what is a legitimate thing to, that I can do to, to build relationships and what, what crosses a line and feel myself being tempted and I don't want to I want to jump into something that, that I know is wrong. It takes discernment there. And I think that's what leads us into our next kind of section here, this personal discipline. Because while saying that I want to be all things to all people that I might win them, it, it shifts now to, to personal discipline. I think recognizing that in this desire to be all things to all people and immerse yourself in the world of those who don't know Christ so that you can win them for Christ, that there are perhaps temptations that come along with that. And to guard against that, it's clinging to Christ and some personal discipline. And he uses a metaphor here of athletics. So picking up here in verse 24 says, or do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? And then he's going to talk about exercising and boxing. And this would have been well familiar to the Corinthians because there were some significant athletic games that took place every other year nearby them. So you're familiar with the Olympic Games. Uh, and that was going on at this time every four years. But, but every other year, uh, there was what were called the Isthmian Games. And those were held either in Corinth or right by Corinth, in this isthmus right through there. And they went on for almost 700 years in that area. So it was long standing. And they would have things like chariot races and uh, even music and poetry competitions that were done both by men and women, uh, boxing, wrestling, and then a, a sport known as pancration. Anybody know that word? It's basically 
like mixed modern mixed martial arts, like MMA. Like if you're an MMA fan, this was this was your sport back then. There was it was kind of like very few rules, trying to get the other person to submit. So it was kind of a mix between boxing and wrestling with kind of very few rules in there. These were the games that were going on, and athletes then as now, they trained rigorously for these. Uh, Ten months leading up to the game, it was rigorous training, and then the last month they moved to Corinth uh, to dedicate themselves to training, and if they didn't go along with that training regimen, they could be disqualified from the games. Keep in mind that language of disqualification as we get to the end of the passage, because he uses that language. So he uses this analogy they would have been familiar with of athletics. He's saying like a runner, we need to be focused on what it takes to be successful. In this case, success means building these relational bridges to people that we can share the gospel with without compromising uh, the message, certainly, or our own kind of obedience to Christ, conforming to the pattern of the world. And so not getting into those errors requires focus, just like this runner would require a focus. Run in such a way, he says, that you may win. For a race, certainly there was one winner and you were beating all the others if you were wanting to win. And that's not the Christian life. We're not trying to like one-up each other around here. Um, but it's saying be focused on trying to, to complete this goal. Like an athlete, we should focus on the end goal, not the present hardship. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Whether the runner or the wrestler or the boxer, they, if they won, they, they got this crown. And it was a crown simply made of pine boughs that was kind of a native tree around there that was placed on their head. Um, how long does it take your Christmas tree, if you have a real tree, to be just like where the needles are just falling off, right? Not long, a few weeks. So you can imagine these pine bough crowns probably felt nice and supple for about two days. And then they were, they were just dried out and perishable. He says we, we're not pursuing a, a crown that is perishable, but imperishable, Ooh. We're thinking of that which is lasting, bringing other people into this relationship with Christ so their eternity is secure there, enjoying ourselves, eternity with God the Father. We're longing for that. That is imperishable. Like an athlete then, we should discipline ourselves not to win a competition against other Christians, but to maintain our ability to engage others with the gospel. Verse 27 as I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. A life that spirals into sinful self-destruction will make us utterly ineffective for evangelism. It's not that our salvation is, is lost, that like we're saved, reaching people for the gospel, but we mess up too big and so that salvation is lost. That's contrary to biblical teaching. So what does this mean? What what is happening? In what way would we be disqualified? I think of a couple instances that have been in, in the news, especially depending on kind of which news circles you follow. Um, one was a speaker and author that I've loved for 
for decades, named Ravi Zacharias. And some of you might have read his books, listened to his messages, powerful communicator, uh, did a lot of work on college campuses literally all over the world. A few years ago, some, some rumbling started coming up of some people making some accusations of sexual misconduct against him. And ministry kind of effectively closed those down, and it seemed like, ah, maybe it wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything to them. He got sick, and he ultimately died a little over a year ago of, of cancer. And, and since then, there have just been this whole slew of stories that have come out uh, of ways that if they're legitimate, and it seems like they are, that he has abused his position for years to take advantage of women in a number of different scenarios. It, if his life would not have ended anyways, he would have, he would have disqualified himself from any further ministry. So, so there would have been decades of, on the one hand, ministering, but on the other hand, undercutting the very thing that he was trying to do. There's a danger there for all of us. That's a high-profile figure, so it kind of catches our attention, but there's the danger for us, and we can't kid ourselves of saying, yeah, I'm just, I, I'm hanging out with these people, or I'm spending time in this place, well, because I want to reach them for Christ, but but really there's, there's compromises happening in our life all, all along the way to eventually our life becomes utterly indistinguishable. And we're doing things that we never said we would before. There's a desire perhaps initially to reach people, but there's a discipline that needs to take place in our life so that we don't end up following along with the very same things. I think that's why these two sections go together here of accommodation and discipline. What should we do? I'm going to wrap up here with kind of five, five points that, that bring this together. What should we do? First would be simply investing in people who don't yet know Christ. Our, our, our model here as a church is not that we're, we're just trying to get people in the door and then if they come in the door, we can share Christ with them. Although, of course, we want to recognize that any given gathering, there might be those who don't know Christ and we want to have the gospel present all the time. But it's primarily that the body's equipped. We gather to worship and to equip, and then we scatter to take the gospel with us. And as we do that, one of the things we need to do is invest in people who don't yet know Christ. Get to know them, pray for them, spend time with them in sincere friendship. Not, not merely as a step to sharing the gospel, but out of care for them. Certainly with the, the hope of getting to the gospel, but our goal is just showing kindness and love and investing in them. Somebody new joins your group at work. A new family moves into the neighborhood, and they're clearly from a different cultural background, perhaps moving in from another country here, and you can look for ways to invest in them and get to know them. Find out what their particular concerns and needs are and jump into their world as much as you can. Invest in them. Invest. Engage. Engage them on spiritual topics as an overflow of your spiritual life. Not in some artificial way, but as you're yourself growing and learning to think about all of life from the lens of a biblical view of life, then look for ways to engage people with that. So whatever the particular issues that are, that are dominating people's attention and concerns, how, how can you use that as, a, as an avenue to talk about spiritual things? You know, maybe it's 
fear of COVID. Maybe it's a weariness of, as things have gone on. Maybe it's uncertainty looking at world events and they're wondering what is happening in the world and you can use that as an opportunity to talk about why things happen in the world, why bad things happen, why bad things flow out of our own lives. So invest in people, engage with them on spiritual things. Uh, I mentioned last week, um, uh, Pastor Mike, who, who was my, my predecessor here, was in town and had a chance to catch up with him on Monday after he was here on Sunday. And I'm always so encouraged at Mike that he's in his 70s now and he is still sharing the gospel with his high school classmates. There's still some that he regularly connects with. And he had just some great stories of some people that he's sort of kept in touch with a little bit over 50 years, but has resumed even more contact with them. And there's been these great many-hour conversations about the gospel as he's continued to invest in them and engage them on spiritual topics. So invest, engage, explain. Explain the gospel to them. Look for ways eventually to get to the gospel, that it's not just your good life that will influence them. That might open some doors in some ways, but, but that could be misinterpreted pretty easily for ways to explain the gospel. Man has a problem. God has a solution. and We have a responsibility. Our problem is sin. The wages of sin is death. Our problem is our sin is our rebellion against God, and it's true of you, and it's true of me, and it's true of them that in their heart they have they've rebelled against their maker. And there's consequences of that that come in the form of death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. In contrast to what we've earned from our sin, there's this free gift offered to us in Christ. God has made that solution that Christ, he took this death on himself. He, he died in our place. He died, died for sinners. And as a problem, God is a solution. We have a responsibility. And our responsibility is repent and believe. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified, meaning to be declared righteous, declared forgiven, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we want. We want peace with God. We want to be brought to him. And that is available through Jesus by faith, as we see our sin as against God, we turn from that, turning in faith to Christ, and we're forgiven. To look for ways to explain this, to bridge to this. Invest, engage, explain, invite. Invite. Our goal, again, is not just to fill some empty chairs that are here, but that might be an ongoing way to continue to talk to them. I might invite them to church, youth group, crossroads, Awana, your small group, as a way just to continue to talk. Um, Easter's coming up. Easter is, a, is an easy avenue for some people who, who, who maybe you've struggled to talk to, but you've been on your mind, you've been praying for them. Easter might be an easy one to invite them to church. Some people are more open on like Christmas Eve type services and Easter services. So April 4th, you, you might keep that in mind and, and invite Invite somebody to come with you. And then finally, at the same time, and this is what ties in with our last section, remain deeply involved with other believers so engagement doesn't become conformity. There's, there's discipline that's needed so that as we're trying to reach people, we don't simply just become conformed to, to their behavior. And one way to practice that is to be deeply involved with other believers so that the influence is not 
kind of running the wrong direction. And so as we're trying to reach people, we don't become isolated from, from other followers of Christ. And so we remain immersed with one another, uh, with other believers. Let's pray.